Well, good morning and welcome to Bridgewater. If I haven't gotten a chance to meet you yet, my name is Tim and I'm one of the pastors here. We are so excited that you are here with us this morning. You know, obviously Christmas is right around the corner. And so if you are thinking of a gift for one of your kids or grandkids, I would really recommend this Action Bible. My son Andrew has one of these and it's a comic book style Bible and he reads it all the time. And so if you're looking for a gift, we have a ton of gifts out there aimed at your kids, and we are selling them at an incredible discount. This price on the back says $29.99. We're selling it for $10, so we're literally losing money on this. Why would we do that? Because we want to be a resource to you, to your family, and so I would grab one of these if you're at least thinking of it. If you're like me and you're like, I don't even know what to get one of these kids, what should I get? Boom, buy this. Don will take care of that for you. So that is your friendly Christmas shopping reminder. We'll give you another one next week because you're like two weeks away and Amazon doesn't always deliver that quickly. All right. So when I was in elementary school, I was terrible at school. Anybody else? (laughs) All right. So I bombed like all of my tests. And like a typical 10-year-old, I spent a lot of my time hanging out with my friends, skateboarding, going to the beach in Florida, eating ice cream, goofing off instead of studying. And I would do the bare minimum in school. I got all Ds and one A. I got an A in gym and lunch. I'm not even sure I got an A in lunch, but that was my school. And I took those same bad habits, and I brought them into junior high, and then I brought them into high school. And when I got to 10th grade, I decided that I wanted to wrestle for my high school. And I learned that in order to play sports, you needed a certain GPA. You needed a 2.0. And so I began to work really, really hard. I was finally motivated to do something And so that first semester, I worked incredibly hard, and I got a 2.8. Now, I know for some of you, that's still not very impressive, but for a guy who was getting all Ds, that was a minor miracle. But then I learned the meaning of the word cumulative. You see, cumulative, you need a 2.0 GPA for all of ninth grade and 10th grade, all of your high school. And my grades from ninth grade were so bad that I was declared ineligible. As a 10th grader, I was devastated. I I couldn't believe that I had worked so hard to turn that ship around, yet my past had come back to haunt me. All of my past actions, failures, consequences, mistakes, all of that had come back to haunt me, and I had become my own worst enemy. You see, Because I was ineligible, I couldn't participate in those sports. Has anything like that ever happened to you? Has your past ever come back to haunt you? So that's the question we're going to wrestle with. What do you do when your past haunts you? What do you do when it's your past failures or mistakes or sins or actions and those consequences come back to haunt you? I believed, hey, if I was only smarter, things would be different. If school was only easier, things would be different. If I hadn't made those mistakes, then things would be different. 
And so, so many times our past has a way of catching up to us. Maybe for you, it's a past relationship, a marriage, a divorce, a job, a habit that has kind of run amok in your life. Maybe it's a past financial decision that has come back to haunt you. It just keeps showing up and showing up and showing up. And so what do you do? How do you deal with that? What do you do with your past when it comes to haunt you? That's the question we're going to wrestle with today. And we're going to look at five women in the Bible who have this past that has kind of haunted them. So if you have your Bibles, go to Matthew chapter 1. Grab your Bible, open up your Bible app. If you don't have a Bible, we're going to put it on the screen behind you. We're going to go to Matthew chapter 1. This is in the New Testament. And uh, Matthew is one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. And he is writing and he's giving his account of Jesus, his life, his ministry. And each of the gospel writers is really sharing the same story, but they're all sharing a different perspective and they all have a different audience in mind. And Matthew is speaking to, he's writing to a Jewish audience. And the Jews would have been really fascinated by families and origins and genealogies and lists of people. And so that's how Matthew starts his book. Matthew chapter 1, let's start reading in verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. If you're looking for a cool name, ladies, for a child, Aminadab would be cool. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Jump down to 15. Elihud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Matan. Matan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. How many of you heard that and thought, who cares? Why so many names? And why did you read all of them? Well, here's the thing. In ancient tribal cultures like Israel, Tracing your family tree was vital to your identity. In Israel, in tribal communities like that, they would have seen who they were, and they would have said, hey, you are a son of somebody. You are a daughter of somebody, and your identity was all wrapped up in that. One historian writes this, for many cultures, Ancient and modern, and certainly in the Jewish world of Matthew's day, this genealogy was the equivalent of a roll of drums 
a fanfare of trumpets, and a town crier calling for attention. Any first century Jew would find this family tree both impressive and compelling. Like a great procession down a city street, we watch figures at the front and the ones in the middle, but all eyes are waiting for the one who comes in the position of greatest honor right at the end. See, if you're a first century Jew, you're hearing this read at maybe a, a house church for the first time, and you're, you would be compelled. You would be so intrigued. You'd be sitting on the edge of your seat waiting to hear what is going on next. I know for a lot of us, we're not super geeked out by like genealogies. Now, now probably some of you have gone to Ancestry.com and you've tried to figure some of that out. Maybe you even come from Scotland and like you have like a castle there in your family. But for the rest of us, it's not really a big deal. But for the Jews, this was an incredible deal. It was so important to them. It was so important to who they were in their identity. I mean, on the surface, Matthew is tracing out how a peasant rabbi from, by the way, Nazareth, not Jerusalem, but some no-name town, Nazareth, has become the Messiah, how he is a royal person from a royal lineage. But underneath all of that, this is not a normal genealogy. First of all, there are five women listed. Come on, ladies. That's it? Five women? And I get a woohoo. Five women are listed in this genealogy. Thank you. Now, that's important because typically women would not be listed in a genealogy. And if you're going to list women in a Jewish genealogy, which is, by the way, a patriarchal society, you would anticipate that it might be the matriarchs, right? You would anticipate that it would be like Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah. But it's not. It's not these women at all. And those were the women who would have been center stage in the Jewish community, in the Jewish heritage. And so Matthew does something really, really interesting. First, he lists women in a genealogy, which never happened. Secondly, he doesn't list the women you would think would be listed. He lists ladies like Tamar, a Canaanite, Rahab, a Canaanite. And he lists these women, and he's drawing attention to them to say, I want you to look at these ladies. This should stick out to you. And these ladies should, short, should sort of shock you because of their past, because of what has gone on in their lives. And so why these specific women? Look at verse 3. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Not the Tamar that we talked about last week or two weeks ago. But if you want to read about Tamar, you can go to Genesis 38. I'm not going to cover her in great detail because of time and really because of the contents of her story. But really the idea was Tamar's husband died and her father-in-law was supposed to help out and provide her with a son. And she took things into her own hands and it was 
a hot mess, all right? The idea of Tamar is she didn't trust God. She just did her own thing. But then look at verse 5. We have a lady named Rahab and a lady named Ruth. Now, if you don't know who Rahab is, Rahab is a prostitute. She is somebody who sold her body to make money. And we find Rahab's story in the book of Joshua. You see, Israel was supposed to conquer. They were supposed to take over Jericho. And before they take over Jericho, Joshua sends two spies into the city of Jericho just to investigate and see what's going on. And here's what Joshua says. Joshua chapter 2. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. Now, people like Rahab would have had their homes set up kind of like hotels. You could go there and stay there. And that's exactly what they did. And the king of Jericho finds out that there are spies from Israel, goes to Rahab and says, okay, tell me about where these spies are. I want them right now. And Rahab, having heard about God, having heard about what God did at the Red Sea, splitting it, she believed that, he was, that, that God was the God of the entire universe. And she believed that God was doing something great. That, that through God, he was going to preserve this nation and have a Messiah come out. And so she hid these two spies, and she lies to the king and says, what spies? No spies here. They were here, but they're gone. Look at what happens later in the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is talking about all of these great people of faith, which her past has followed her all the way to the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 11 says, By faith, a prostitute, Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. Her past followed her her entire life. Her identity was wrapped up in what she did for a living. Her identity was wrapped up in the past choices and decisions that she made. And it followed her. Even though she is in Hebrews 11, really the, the hall of faith. Amazing people who walked by faith find their names mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11. And with that is a lady named Rahab. She was a sex worker. Not somebody that you would say, this is an example. I want to be like Rahab, and yet Matthew is choosing to point her out. Look what James says in chapter 2. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? This is a woman with a really shady, colorful past. And maybe that describes you. Maybe there's been some mistakes. Maybe there's some failures. There's been some habits in your life. And you come to church, you come here, and you think, man, there is no way that God would ever want anything to do with me. We think that God looks at us, and he sees us and declares us, 
ineligible. And he looks at the mistakes, he looks at the failures, he looks at our decisions, and he goes, yeah, no way. And, and that's how we feel about ourselves. There's no way that God would ever want anything to do with me. But here's the reality. Here's that first truth I want you to grab onto. Your past doesn't define you. Jesus does. That when you come to Christ and you put your faith in Christ, he radically transforms your identity. And God doesn't look at you and see your failures and your sins and your mistakes. When you've placed your faith in Christ, the only thing God sees is the perfect record of Jesus. That's it. And so whether you're like Tamar and you try to take things in your own hands and you haven't trusted him for all of things that you should be, or maybe you're like Rahab and you're like, you know what, Tim, if you knew my past, if you knew my story, if you knew my baggage, you probably wouldn't say those things. But God, in his providence, in his sovereignty, works through women like Rahab. Now, I'm not picking on women today, okay? Now, if we looked at that genealogy, the men are far worse than the women, okay? All I'm saying is, for some reason, Matthew is pointing out these women to make a point because his audience is Jewish. And in that audience would be the religious who's who, the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees and all these people who thought they were pretty awesome, that they were following the law, they had their I's dotted, their T's crossed, and they had their acts get together. And Matthew is saying, you want to know what? The women that came out of the lineage of Jesus, they weren't perfect. The men that came out of that lineage weren't perfect, and God used all of them. Your past doesn't define you. Jesus does. Let's look at the next woman. It's Ruth. Ruth was really born out of the wrong family. If you're not familiar with Ruth's story, it's a pretty short book. It's, it's four chapters. You could read it in one day. And Naomi is Ruth's mother-in-law. Naomi loses her husband. He passes away, and shortly after that, she loses her son, Ruth's husband. And so they've been devastated. They're grieving of these losses. And so Naomi is going to leave and go back to Israel. And Ruth has no husband. She's devastated by her loss. She goes to her mother-in-law and says, hey, mom, what do I do? Naomi's like, you're on your own. Like, go do whatever you want to do. And Ruth says, you know what? Naomi, I want to come with you. I want your people to be my people. I want your God to be my God. And so they both go back to Israel. And here's how people see her. They see her as just a Moabite from Moab. And if you're not familiar with Moabites, they came from Lot. Lot had a crazy, incestuous relationship with his daughter. And out of that came the Moabites. And so the Jews would have seen the Moabites as people you just didn't talk to, you didn't hang out with. They were a disgrace. And so notice, in chapter 1, verse 22, 
Now Naomi returned from Moab accompanied by what? Ruth the Moabite. Why you got to throw a Moabite in there? Her daughter-in-law arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Next verse. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain. So anyone whose eyes I will find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So Ruth just wants to glean. She wants to go into the fields after the workers, pick up all the leftovers, and God is using that to provide for her. But notice how she's referred to Ruth the Moabite. Next verse. Later in chapter 2, then Ruth the Moabite said, he even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. So she meets this guy named Boaz. Boaz has this incredible field, has all of these workers. And Boaz is from Bethlehem. But nobody refers to Boaz as Boaz the Bethlehemite. But they love to refer to Ruth as the Moabite. She came from the wrong family, the other side of the tracks, she was one of those people. I don't know if they treated her differently. I don't know if they gave her the evil eye. But I know that they keep referring to her as Ruth the Moabite. Give me the next verse. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. Next verse. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today you are witnesses. So they keep pointing out that it's Ruth the Moabite, it's Ruth the Moabite, it's Ruth the Moabite. For a Jewish person, this would have been embarrassing and this would have been a disgrace. That Ruth comes from the wrong family. Maybe that's you. Maybe people find out your last name or your maiden name. And they go, oh, I know who your parents are. Ha, I know you. I know your brother or I know your sister. And all of that is now attached to you. And you're like, come on, I'm trying to get away from that. It, it would kind of be like being related to Osama bin Laden. You had nothing to do with it. But as soon as people find out that you're related to him, they're like, oh, mm-hmm, okay, really? No, you can't work here. No, you can't be here. No, 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 not a chance. And that's how they likely would have viewed her, that her reputation, they would have thought of her as being ineligible. But the second thing I want you to grab onto is that your family doesn't define you. Jesus does. That your identity isn't wrapped up in, in who your parents were or your grandparents were, or it's not wrapped up in maybe what you did in the past that kind of followed you to now. That Jesus radically transforms your identity. Maybe you've got a background, it's a little shady got some skeletons in the closet. Maybe it's your reputation. Maybe it's your family. But the one thing that defines you is Jesus. Let's jump into the next person mentioned. It's Bathsheba. 
We just talked about David and Bathsheba a couple weeks ago in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Verse 1, David is not really doing what he's supposed to be doing. David has a lot in this. But in the springtime, at a time when kings go off to war, hint, hint, David should have been out to war. David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, and but David remained in Jerusalem. Verse 2. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. You're like, whoa, what's he doing up there? Those days, the roof would have been flat, not slanted, so he probably wouldn't have like slid off the roof like Santa Claus. And his roof would have been much higher than everybody else's roof, and so he could see the whole city. He's walking around on the roof. It's cool outside, temperature-wise, cooling down. That would have been pretty normal. From the rooftop, he saw a woman bathing. Also, pretty normal in that culture. Not normal in ours, okay? Especially in 20-degree weather. There wasn't indoor plumbing. And so they would have bathed outside. And there would have been ritual bathings for cleansing in these mikvahs, almost like a baptismal pool. They would have gone all the way down and come out. And so that's what she's doing. That's typical. That's normal. The woman was out. She was very beautiful. Next verse. And David sent someone to find out about her. So instead of averting his eyes, instead of turning his head, instead of just going back in his own house, minding his own business, he sees her. He's like, hey, she's pretty. And he texts his friend and says, hey, can you find out who she is? The man said, she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So somebody actually warns David, David, <clears throat> she's married. David, <clears throat> the husband is in your army. Back off, dude. He's like, well, but, you know, um, she's, she's pretty. Next verse. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him. He slept with her, and she went back home. Now, David played a significant role in this. But Bathsheba had a choice, too. And I don't know what that choice would have looked like. I don't know if her life was, would have been on the line. I don't know all of those details. That's not given to us. But we find out that in verse 5 that she's pregnant. She's pregnant, and it actually gets worse. Her husband gets murdered, and... David ends up marrying Bathsheba, but she made one bad choice that followed her the rest of her life. And so, so many of us can think, you know what, I've had that too. I'm now found ineligible because I made one bad choice and it followed me and it's followed me my whole life. But remember that first point, your past doesn't define you. Jesus does. And even though you've made those mistakes, you've had failures, you've had sins, you've had those habits, and it feels like, you know what, my life has been all off the rails. You are not found ineligible. Jesus radically changes your identity. Let's take a look at the last woman. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Mary, someone you might be familiar with. This is how... 
the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her in public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. So Mary and Joseph are engaged, they're betrothed. It was not marriage yet, but it was so serious that it was a divorce that would break them up, right? So imagine, you're engaged, and the love of your life goes away for a little visit, hanging out with aunts and uncles and cousins, and they come back, and she's pregnant. You're like, what? Hold on. And you know that you haven't done anything with them. And so you would be questioning and wondering, and so would everybody else. And it wasn't until an angel shows up to Joseph that he's like, okay, maybe this really is a God thing. I mean, the angel kind of like scared me a little bit, but maybe God really is at work. Everybody else would have seen Mary, and they would have known that she was engaged, and they would have known that it wasn't Joseph, and they would have thought of Mary with this bad tainted reputation. Oh, there goes Mary. She got pregnant. It's not Joseph's. It was God. Oh, okay. Sure. Great. Mm -hmm. Whatever. Keep on telling that story, Mary. Now she's starting to show. She's showing even more. She's further along in the pregnancy. And that's her reputation. Joseph stays with her. He doesn't want to divorce her. And this reputation follows her all the way into the life of Jesus. Look at what it says in John chapter 8. The, the religious leaders are confronting Jesus, and they say, well, we are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. 30 years lady, later, Mary's reputation had followed her. She had a bad reputation. But you know, your reputation doesn't define you. Jesus does. It's not your past. It's not your family. It's not your reputation. Jesus radically transforms your identity. So Jesus shows up and he brings mercy. Here's what James chapter 2 says. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy, mercy triumphs over judgment. Jesus came to bring mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment every single time. Matthew is writing this gospel, writing to a Jewish audience, to the really religious people who thought they had it all together. And he's saying, you know what? Look at this lineage Look at this genealogy. It's not the people you would expect. It's people with really shady pasts. It's Canaanite women. It's people who come from the wrong side of town. It's people who, who had made mistakes, who weren't married to Jewish men. And God used all of them to bring about the Messiah. And so here's, here's the big idea. Christmas reminds us that the sins of our past can find forgiveness because of God's mercy. That no matter what 
is going on in your life. God can work in you and through you, and he wants to use you. And so maybe you're here today, and you're like me. You have this identity amnesia. You know the Bible talks about who you are in Christ, but you forget. You're like me. You need to be reminded over and over and over and over and over again, this is who I am in Christ. If you look at the book of Ephesians, chapters 1, 2, and 3, there's probably like 25, 30 identity markers of who you are in Christ. And I just want to share a handful with you. Number one, you are chosen in Christ. And so the fact that you are chosen in Christ, that means that you are loved and you are desired by God. You're loved and desired by God. That's who you are. God looks at you, and he sees that you are chosen. But the other thing that he sees is you're not just chosen, that you are holy and blameless. Holy and blameless, that means you're not defined by your past. That means when you're in Christ, you are completely forgiven. You are pleasing to God. But it also says that you're adopted, that he sees you, and you are his son, you are his daughter. You have the king as your father. You have a family that you belong to. It also says that you're redeemed, that you've been purchased out of sin, out of the darkness. You have a spiritual debt that's been paid for. You are forgiven. That is your identity. And then in chapter two, it says you are God's handiwork. It's the idea of you are his masterpiece like a painting that the God of the universe created and painted. He did that with you. You're his handiwork. When God looks at you, this is what he sees, that you are chosen, holy, blameless, adopted, redeemed, forgiven, and his handiwork. And so you, you probably sat on this card. I want you to find it because these are all of these traits that I just mentioned. I want you to carry this with you, put it in your car, put it by your computer, put it in your wallet, put it in your purse, tape it to your mirror when you're brushing your teeth, because we need to be reminded of who we are in Christ. No matter your past, no matter your family background, no matter your reputation, you are not defined by those things. You are defined by Jesus. And Jesus can use anyone and anything. Let me pray with you. God, you are incredible. I know we covered a lot of ground today. And you have that genealogy there for a reason. And it is by your grace that you used so many of these women that we would never think you would be using. But you use them. No matter their past, no matter their background, no matter their baggage, no matter their sins, their failures, their mistakes, you look at us and you don't see ineligible. You see your son, you see your daughter. Or you see somebody who is far from you, but you love them and you're pursuing them and you want to have a relationship with them. You sent Jesus to die on the cross for them, for us. God, we are so thankful that you 
entered into this world and you pursued us. Pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand as we close with this last song?